Hi, and welcome to the Unhinged History Podcast, the podcast where two degenerates compulsively consume history and then once a week join forces and tell each other the stories that yep, the stories and the sources that they have learned that their husbands are sick of learning about. I'm host <laughs> one, I'm Teresa. I'm host two, and I'm Angie. And neither of us wear wigs. All the time. Actually, I'm going to be honest, last time I wore a wig was when I was Mavis for Halloween. Mavis does typing? No, uh, Mavis from Hotel Transylvania. Oh, okay. I was about to say that makes more sense than a 90s typing game for PC. Yeah. Uh, nope, I wasn't a keyboard. <laughs> or Miss Bacon. Yeah, uh, I was none of those things. I was Mavis from Hotel Transylvania, and as as the the rest of the world doesn't know this, but I have um, what could only be described as platinum white hair with uh, brunette highlights. That's all my hair. It's natural. It's weird. Here we are. So if I want to be low Mavis, lights. I have to wear a wig. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're low lights. Yeah, yeah, brunette low lights that are not always there because I have kid hair. Sometimes they're hidden. Weird. Like yesterday, you could see him, but I can't really see him today. Okay, just how I have my hair, I guess. That's funky. Oh, I love it. <laughs> oh goodness, I well, have I'm... a doozy for you. But you have I have a doozy hear your story too. Yeah. Wait a minute. Okay, so hold on. You have a doozy. Does that mean that I need to be the palate cleanser? No, you do not need to be the palate cleanser if you don't want to be. There's, there's only. A couple of neg negative things, but the the gist of the story is um, pretty spectacular. Okay, okay, because I have a story that is one. It's it's very lighthearted for me. Okay. Um, it, it's not up there with Clara the Rhino, but I mean it. It's it's lighthearted. <laughs> I like lighthearted. I like yeah. So it it doesn't matter. I mean, I let me see. I went. I I I did a single yes last week. Yeah, we did um, Henrietta Lacks, and yeah. that was just you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that was a complete buzzkill. So, um, <laughs> if you time ruiner, <laughs> I know if you've had the ability to say drink your feelings away and then sober up, and you've you've come back. Um, thank you. Uh, but that's we said, appreciate I mean, you. I should I should let you go first because I mean, I I went first and last last time. <laughs> I went only last time. Yeah. Okay, well, if you want me to go first, um, well, either way, whichever direction I go, I, I'm starting my story out a little different than normal, but you'll understand why. Does it have I sources? Have you... Are you going to tell me the sources uh, yes. in the middle? No, I'm going to tell you the sources, but first I have to show you a picture. Okay. Instead of at the end, you know, like I try to save the pictures right, through the end, right. I could not tell you this story without showing the picture first. Is it a picture of the Brave Little Toaster? No. It's a picture of Bass Reeves. Oh, okay. So she is showing me a picture of <laughs> a black and white photo of a black man with a Sam Elliott-esque mustache. And yeah, he, truly. Yeah, honestly. Um, he is, you know, bald on top of his head, but the hair is clearly all on his upper lip. Um, <laughs> it just migrated down. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he has a... Uh, plaid, like a very I think it's plaid plaid yeah. 
a sport coat on with a competing plaid bow tie. <laughs> Does that not look like the most delightful individual you've ever met? He has very kind eyes. So you're either going to tell me that he's an incredible person or a serial killer. I'm going to tell you about him being one of the first U.S. Marshals. Oh, hell yes. Okay, I'm down for this. <laughs> okay. So I had to show you the picture first because I feel like, at least for me, I saw his picture years ago, probably five or six or seven years ago, and went, wow, who is this mustached man? I must know the whole story and have kind of been sitting on him sharing his story with you for a long time, but now seems like the perfect time in honor of the month we're in to share the story of Lawman Bass Reeves. So... so Wait a minute. Considering your husband's facial hair situation and the fact that you've done like the mustache strike mm -hmm. and now this man because of his mustache, does the man need to be concerned over his facial <laughs> hair situation? Because I am I am noticing a trend. Um, no, he is. He's fairly confident in his facial hair situation. Um, he's determined that since he knows how much I love great hair in general and the fact that he shaves his head and I, I have left him for a dapper Scotsman yet he's solid and very comfortable in his self <laughs> okay okay he, he that actually seems, says that on the regular that just seems like he's baiting you so when it happens he can go you know it was a good run it took longer <laughs> than I thought it would I'm going to tell him that you said that, and he is going to throw his head back and cackle and say something to the effect of, look, I know my place. Good. That That's how that's going to go. Mailman. <laughs> the UPS guy. <laughs> I have a beef with the local mailman, but the UPS guy, we're tight. Man who invented the air conditioner, Saint. Saint. Man who invented the swamp cooler, want to punch him in the face. He did his best, right? Like, Yeah, best with what you're working with. I understand that. But after 80 years, you'd think by now we could redesign it a little bit. That's just, it's kind of where I stand. All right. But anyhow. Issue. Yeah. Okay. We're not here to talk about how I feel about swamp coolers. <laughs> mustachioed marshals. Yes, we are here to talk about mustachioed marshals. My sources are the base excuse me, Bass Reeves biography, U.S. Marshall and Facts from Britannica.com. Was the real Lone Ranger a black man? The amazing true story of Bass Reeves, the formerly enslaved man who protected the Wild West. Um, that was a History.com article from November 2021 by Thaddeus Morgan. The Encyclopedia of Oklahoma History and Culture. So that's okhistory.org, the Oklahoma Historical Society. The Three River Museums, located in Muskogee, Oklahoma. Um, Bass Reeves. Thieves, murderers, feared one of the Wild West baddest lawmen. That's from an article which I got most of my information from, from the Atlantic Journal-Constitution by Sheila Pohl. And the, I can't believe I finally got a story with this, the National Park Services. Hell yes. I have been <laughs> I bogarting so that excited. source for the longest. <laughs> I was like, I have got to come up with a story at some point where I get to utilize the National Park Services website. <laughs> so it, it is a treasure. 
honestly. It truly is. Um, I thought it would be really fun to not just start with his story, but start with how he was described along with his picture. So the Atlantic Journal-Constitution describes him as, quote, one who towered over others at more than six feet tall and sported a bushy walrus-style mustache, sometimes wore disguises to catch thieves, killers, and the like, who fled to Indian territory to escape the law. He had many close friends among the Cherokee, Creek, Seminole, Chickasaw, and Choctaw who sometimes assisted him in the hunt. And then allow me to set the scene with this write-up from History.com. On a riverbank in Texas, a master of disguise waited patiently with his accomplice, hoping that his target, an infamous horse thief, would show himself on the trail. After four days, the hunch paid off when the bandit unwittingly walked toward the man who hunted the outlaws out of the Old West. Springing from the bushes, the cowboy confronted his mark with a warrant. As the desperado reached for his weapon in a last-ditch effort, the lawman shot him down before his gun could leave his side. <laughs> that You've been mm -hmm. practicing that. I have been so excited to read that, you don't even know. say that feels <laughs> like you have read it to the both kiddos at bedtime every night for the past week. No, just the husband. <laughs> Who kept hearing, and did you know, and did you know, and was like, oh, sweet God, what have I done? What have I done to deserve this? I'm just trying to watch this Niners game. <laughs> um, To speak to his perhaps wearing disguises to accomplish his task, he is said to have dressed up for one of his warrants as a beggar, walked 30 miles to the home of a pair of brothers that needed to be brought in, they, along with his mother, their mother, invited them in for the night, and by morning, both the brothers were cuffed and brought in on foot all 30 miles. Oh, dang. <laughs> yeah. He was not playing around. Like, he didn't park the horse nope. two miles away. It was, that's committing to the bit. Truly committing to the bit, yeah. And can you imagine walking behind somebody for thirty miles handcuffed? They must have been livid. Ida Lou binged it. <laughs> Ida straight up Han Dynasty like lost prisoners because I can't keep I can't keep track of something for thirty miles. I can't keep track of something for thirty miles driving. Truly, I I thought the same thing. I was like, well, for so first of all, there's no GPS. He knew where he was going. <laughs> Second of all, he did this while keeping on his side two handcuffed criminals. So impressive. Yeah. And I can't right? imagine that they wanted to comply. I'm suspecting probably not. And it really, reading that story made me wonder what mom thought. Because mom was also there. The brother's mom was there. And she let, them in, let him in for the evening. So do you think she knew, like... Halfway through the night, this guy might actually be here to get, to arrest my children. I mean, they probably I, had it coming. <laughs> either the kids were just obnoxious POSs and the mom wanted them to like, you know what? You've earned your time. You've brought this along. I've been telling you for the longest time <laughs> that you shouldn't be running with those kids because those kids are the bad kids. Or she was just like, you rot no good SOB. This is what I get for showing one ounce of kindness. I don't let beggars <laughs> in and this is the last time I do. I it really there's no in between. I think you're absolutely right. So, um, he was born as a slave in 1838 in Crawford County, Arkansas, which is a super bummer. Um, however, 
his and I okay I struggled with this part because I didn't want to give anybody credit that didn't deserve credit in his story but it also seemed in my opinion to shortchange it by not telling it the way it is so um when he was small his master relocated the family to Grayson Texas and that's where Bass Reeves was raised He would have been about 23 years old when the American Civil War started, and according to Britannica.com, his whereabouts during the Civil War are not entirely known and a little bit unclear. It's possible that he fought in Indian Territory with the Union Indian Brigade, but it's it's kind of murky. No one really knows for sure what he did. Mm. However... It is said that he served at the Battle of Pea Ridge in 62, potentially Chickamauga in September of 63, and Missionary Ridge in November of 63 as well. Supposedly, he served under Colonel George Reeves, who was the son of his owner, William Reeves. And in that particular instance, when he served at the Battle of Pea Ridge, he would have been serving for the Confederacy. Okay, that makes sense, because I can't imagine you would have your slaves for the Union. Right, right. Um, Britannica.com considers it unlikely that he served at Chickamauga and Missionary Ridge, but it was more than possible um, he escaped in late 62 after the Battle of Pea Ridge. So they don't dis- nobody discredits Pea Ridge, but they're not positive on Chickamauga or Missionary Ridge. So okay. just let that be said, we're un- a little unclear about his Civil War time. Reeves's family members, however, claimed that at some time between 61 and 62, he attacked his owner following an argument during a card game and escaped under cover of night to Indian Indian Territory, which is now Kansas and Oklahoma. So that you're thinking that whole Arkansas, Kansas, Oklahoma area. This was a region ruled by five First Nation tribes, which included the Cherokee, Seminole Creek, Chickasaw and Chickasaw, who were forced from their homelands due to the Indian Removal Act of 1830. Which, are you familiar with that? Because I was only marginally yeah. familiar with that. And okay. that that um, would also later include the Osage. Okay, I wondered if it did when I was looking into this because it felt like the, the brief, I'd heard about it, I'd read about it, but I didn't know enough of it to like walk into this podcast and say I knew what it was. So I did a little bit for the reading, and um, I wondered if it included way more than what was originally, you know, the Creek Seminole Cherokee right, group. Right. And that would make sense to me. Um, I also learned during during doing the research for this, I also learned that since some of the some of the First Nation tribes actually fought on the side of the Confederacy during the Civil War, mm-hmm. the western portion of their land was taken away. And used as reservation space for the Plains Indians, which I had no clue. And I assumed that they used that Indian Removal Act of 1830 as part of why they could just take that, along with the fact that the Confederacy lost the war. I mean, you know, honestly, if you look at our country, we pretty much just do as we please and create the reason afterward. Truly. And it it can take 30 years to come up with that reason. (laughs) Right. It's like, oh, the thing I did 30 years ago. Uh, I need a good reason. I can't just say because I wanted it. (laughs) Because you did Um, the thing. You know what you did. It's mine now. You know what you did. 
It is worth mentioning that while the tribal community was governed through a series of tribal courts, that jurisdiction of the tribal courts only extended to members of the five tribes, which meant anyone who wasn't a part of those tribes from petty criminals to escaped slaves could only be pursued on a federal level within its boundaries. So, like, if there's not enough guys to come find you, you're probably pretty good out there would be my understanding. With that knowledge and the level of lawlessness that was the Old West, Bass would thrive and earn his larger-than-life reputation. After settling into the Indian Territory, Bass learned the landscape as well as the language and the customs of the Seminole and the Creek tribes. Ooh. So, um, right. The Three Rivers Museum has this beautiful quote saying, There was a great deal of distrust of the white man among the Indians, said Brady, 70, who was writing in Reeves' biography. Bass was able to make a lot of friendships out, out of that. He learned the land and all of the potential hideouts. Now, it is my pleasure to tell you that the Brady mentioned in that quote is Paul L. Brady, a retired judge, and the author of the biography of Bass Reeves called The Black Badge, Deputy United States Marshal Bass Reeves, and his very own great nephew. Whoa! <laughs> uh-huh. Yep. Who describes him as tough when chasing criminals, but devoted to his family and very kind-hearted. <laughs> Meanwhile, the National Park Services said that he weighed in at 180 pounds and had superhuman strength. <laughs> nice such a hero so after the war he goes to work as a guide for the u.s government for u.s government officials who need to get through indian territory then after the 13th amendment was passed in 1865 abolishing slavery bass now officially a free man returns to arkansas where he's married and goes on to have 11 children okay right? okay um okay yeah, his baby maker works. You've done something. You've been busy. <laughs> in 1875, he's commissioned by a deputy to be a deputy U.S. Marshal by federal judge Isaac Parker of the Western District of Arkansas. Isaac Parker is remembered as, quote, the hanging judge for the high number of convictions of crimes punishable by death in his court. Judge Parker was given authorization for 200 marshals. I mean, look, you got to be known for something, right? And if you're going to be known right. for you got to lean in. You don't want to really? be the lenient judge. You don't want to be the corrupt judge. You want to be that judge. You want to be yeah. the judge everybody's afraid of. Right. So keep in mind, he Judge Parker, so first of all, we know he's, he's clearly a hard ass, right? Um, we've got that. And we know that he's been given authorization for 200 marshals. However, at any given time, it was Reeves and maybe 30 other marshals who were responsible for apprehending criminals in a 75,000-square-mile region. I think I could speed there. I think I can, I'd risk <laughs> it, to be honest. Do you think? Yeah, I right? mean, I'd, I'd go just for broke there, redline that vehicle until I'm out of gas. <laughs> I'm not even going to use brakes. Just cut the brakes. We don't need them. Yeah. Yeah, we're done. Um... So that region is now mostly Oklahoma and Arkansas. And if you're curious, like me, that's roughly 2,500 square miles per each marshal, which is still massive. And no one knew it or was as successful in that region as Mr. Reeves himself. However, 
he couldn't go without getting into a little trouble himself. It's said that he possibly shot his cook. <laughs> but he was found not guilty, as some say it was accidental, and his nephew Johnny testified on his behalf. So it was kind of just brushed under the carpet. The times I've accidentally shot somebody. I would never shoot my cook. <laughs> it depends what my of cook all did. The people. Yeah, what did you? You did know, you it's like curry again. Did you did you mix up the salt and sugar? Because this was awful. Ethel, we've had this conversation. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I guess you're right. Maybe the cook would be the one. <laughs> Reeves, however, was well known for his valor, having killed 14 outlaws and apprehended more than 3,000 throughout his tenure, including, are you ready for this one? Give me the who's who. His own son. Oh, dang. Okay, so he was that yeah. dad. Iron-fisted, hanging judge, and a dad who is just like, look, I, you're safer behind yeah. bars. Yeah, so um, one of my sources basically said that he overheard the warrant being talked about by a couple of other, other marshals. And I don't know if it was the judge. I'm unclear as to who the individual was individual was but somebody suggested somebody other than mr reeves go after him and he was like i i do not think so i will collect my son <laughs> and he did his son had one um, of 11 one of 11 yeah had um committed murder um Ooh. he murdered his wife so Ooh. mr reeves took the warrant and brought in his son shortly after um, he was convicted and sent to Leavenworth. Wow. So that's pretty gnarly, right? Yeah. Could you imagine, like, see, it's one thing when you know you're in trouble as a kid, <laughs> but like minding your own business, hiding in the bush, and your dad comes around the corner and you know this time he's coming for you. Oh. Right? Like, that's, oh, that's a whole lot to me. Author of the book Black Gun Silver Star, R.T. Burton, said, quote, You can't compare him to anybody. He was the baddest badass you could ever think. He shot people from a quarter mile away with a Winchester rifle. Wow. <laughs> right? Coincidentally, it was Burton, as the director of minority affairs at Columbia College of Chicago, who launched a petition and in 92 got Reeves um, inducted into the National Cowboy Hall of Fame. Damn. <laughs> First right? off, didn't know that was a thing. I know. I was like, well, excuse that's so cool. And he also regales us with this delightful quote. Among Reeves' most famous exploits was a shot, excuse me, a shootout with notorious horse thief and murderer Jim Webb, who had been on the run for two years after killing a black preacher over a minor dispute. The story has Reeves picking off Webb from a quarter mile away. A quarter mile away is two city blocks, Burton goes on to explain. To call that shot and hit it, if it's true, he was one of the best shots in the West. You know, okay, I'm just going to go out and call out that, again, Americans need different measurements. You know, we get <laughs> an actual, like, this is how much it is in measurement. It's not in meters, so sorry, Europeans. And then they go, it's in two city blocks. The next measurement, logically, is how many strips of bacon <laughs> from end to end is two end city to blocks end. yeah okay see thank you i just i need yeah. it dumbed down to the lowest common denominator 
I've got you. I mean, in my house, I measure things by the size of cupcakes. Uh, babe, I need you to get me a piece of wood that is six cupcakes wide. We need to live closer. I, I said it before. <laughs> I'll say it again. But if we're measuring thing in cupcakes, I'm going to look at you and be like, I need a I need a reference. And and typically that reference is I need something that that, that this width of cupcakes hand, can hand fit me on. a cupcake. Mm -hmm. I need something six of these long. OK, I will. I will be right back. That's exactly what it's like to be married to me, in case you're curious. <laughs> I, I don't necessarily need to be married to you, but, you know, just, you just want to be my neighbor. It works. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, to go on with Mr. Reeves, he was involved in numerous shootouts. However, he was never wounded. Those 14 that he killed, he killed uh, evidently in self-defense. And in 1901, Reeves was interviewed by a territorial newspaper. At wait, the wait. time, he stated- Self-defense? He's the best shot from a quarter mile away, and he's going to argue self-defense. Hey, I'm going to call some bullshit. I, I'm going to have to go with you on it, but that's like that's like a sniper saying 175 I'm... kills all self-defense. It's like they didn't see you. You were you were camping <laughs> in a different country, right? <laughs> um, I, listen, I'm not going to argue with the mustache man if he said it wasn't 14 or in self-defense. It was in 14. Good God, it was in self-defense. <laughs> I'll get it together, I swear. No, you won't. But that's what I'm here for. <laughs> Thanks. In <laughs> 1901, Reeves was interviewed by a local newspaper that had stated he arrested over 3,000 men and women who had broke federal laws in the Indian Territory. It must be said that Indian Territory in 1890 was the most dangerous area for federal peace officers of the Old West. More than 120 would die before Oklahoma became a state in 1907. Oh, right. Mr. Reeves escaped numerous assassination attempts on his life, and he was considered the most feared U.S. deputy marshal to work the Indian Territory. Also, according to research, Reeves is the only deputy on record who started working for Parker's court in 1875 and worked right up into statehood in 1907. He worked as a um, U.S. Deputy Marshal in Indian Territory for a total of 32 years. Wow. And this this makes me so sad because the only reason he stopped in 1907 is because Oklahoma became a state and laws changed. So um, an African-American man couldn't be a U.S. Marshal in, U in Oklahoma State. Big feelings over that. That is some bullshit. I have huge feelings, especially with his record. I I would have, I don't know, I, I think that someone in the higher-ups should have seen that and been like, oh, actually, <laughs> maybe we should change this legislation and allow him to continue to do the job that he's so great at. Yeah, maybe our, maybe we're wrong. If, Perhaps if we're, we're, yeah. we're wrong. Yeah. However, upon retirement in 1907, he became a city police officer in Muskogee, Oklahoma, where he walked the beat for two years of zero crime. Not a single crime was reported. Residents said that Reeves walked his beat with a sidekick who carried a satchel of pistols. A satchel. <laughs> a satchel. Yeah. A satchel of pistols. Thaddeus, hand me the third one. Thaddeus, <laughs> hand me the fourth one. I'm imagining exactly that. Like the the sidekick with the satchel of pistols is the equivalent to if he were a pro golfer and that was his caddy. I mean, like that. 
How do you deter crime? You shake the the satchel of pistols at the and then would the be other bag of bullets. Like it's like you know, I think think I'm gonna go down three blocks that way since you're good for two. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sadly, um, they, it is believed he can. How do you? How do I want to say this word? He was diagnosed with Bright's disease and died in 1910. What's Bright's disease? I think it is related to the kidneys. I think he had some type of kidney. Um, I don't. I don't want to say failure, but I'll I'll confirm that for you because I know very little about it. I'm about to say because you're never. You're well. Let me say you're rarely diagnosed with something incredible. Right. So Bright's disease is the um, original name for a group of kidney dis- disorders that cause inflammation. Okay. Um. So the tiny blood vessels that filter the waste and fluid from the blood. So it's related to that. That's not I a apologize. fun way to go. I didn't. Yeah. No, but here's the thing. No matter how much you research, I'm going to ask some question that is going to be a name right someone everybody else would have gone oh yeah that's fine yeah i don't care i don't need to know <laughs> oh i i was kind of curious too but i was so much more taken with the rest of his story that i was like well his death seems rather boring compared to the rest of his life <laughs> fair enough Which is, you know you're you not know, wrong at the time of his death newspapers reported that he had killed over 20 men there have been several attempts to locate his grave. Um, both Brady and Burton, the previous authors that I mentioned, think he might be buried in a black cemetery in the Muskogee area, but so far his body has never been found. I do have a couple more pictures to show you, but I wanted to read you um, this. There's a plaque that sits below his statue, and the caption for it is delightful a 25 foot work of art honors the illustrious lawman believed to be the first black u.s deputy marshal west of the mississippi reeves born into slavery served for 32 years under federal judge isaac c parker the larger than life monument is fitting for a man whose legendary exploit exploits made him one of the most feared lawmen in the indian territory even though he was an African-American and illiterate, he brought in more outlaws from eastern Oklahoma and western Arkansas than anyone else. He was able to memorize the warrants for every suspect he was to arrest and bring to trial and never brought in the wrong man. Whoa. Isn't that wild? Well, so yeah, because he had um... 30 miles to interrogate him. <laughs> Are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure you were there? <laughs> There what is, was your uh, mother's maiden name? Oh, <laughs> you're the wrong Brian Parker. I'm going to let Sorry. <laughs> so I also have a couple of really fun pictures to share, but I really needed you to see Bass Reeves first. So I'm going to share my screen. Can you see the screen yet? I can't tell if it's I okay. It notes. should be loading. Perfect. Okay. See that dapper gentleman? Is that his nephew? Uh-huh. Okay, that, so she is showing me a picture <laughs> of a man in a blue sports coat and blue dress shirt underneath. He is a very avuncular older man um, with, you know, white male, pa- white hair that's male pattern baldness. He's holding a his book. book. That's, his that's book the book on. It's mm-hmm. titled The Black Badge. It has a very, a very comic book kind of cover to it, despite it clearly being a thicker 
non-graphic novel, but it's very fun. Mm -hmm. I just, I saw that picture and I was like, I have to include it. He looks like the sweetest man. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. So here's his placard that's just below his statue. It is a, it's pretty his, fabulous. It's a historical mar marker that you would see in an older city, you know, so it's mm -hmm. got that, you know, scalloped top, um, copper, and then it has the, you know, names, uh, embossed, embossed. Yeah, I it. I'm going to go with that. I, yeah, it's not yeah. engraved. It's embossed. Yeah. I, yeah. Um, and that that picture of the Sam Elliott mustache and uh, his mm -hmm. his plaid suit and bow tie. So this placard, I think it's really special to say that it says on the placard, this statue was erected in 2012 as a result of growing awareness of the extraordinary service of Bass Reeves an African-American former slave who became a highly respected deputy U.S. Marshal. The deeds of African-American and Native American lawmen and citizens were over often overlooked in the standard history accounts for much of the 20th century. A fuller picture of the diversity of the people who contributed to the development of the United States is available at the Fort Smith National Historic Site. And I think that is so um, important to, to that they acknowledged we didn't tell the story correctly. Yeah. So we are doing our best now to, to rectify that. Um, <laughs> here's his statue. <laughs> okay. Uh, it is a bronze statue of a rather big horse, and he is on it's the 25 horse. 25 feet tall. That is a big statue. And <laughs> his shotgun is, uh, the butt of it is on his thigh, a uh, barrel in the air, hand on it very casually, and he's got a dog walking beside him. It is absolutely incredible. And looks, uh, this yeah. image, the the clothes and the hat remind me of what um, the other characters in Zorro would wear. Um, the statue alone should have been his <laughs> entry into the voice or a cowboy hall of fame. Like, I, I, I feel like you. that's I really all you need. You. you and I should be able to get a statue of ourselves made like that. And that should be the only <laughs> merit needed to get into the Cowboy Hall of Fame. Just saying. And like, the... we'll just come up with some like really sly story. We no, and, I like, mean, leave it to the pages of mystery to figure it out. Just just <laughs> no side story. Just this is my statue. I'll be taking no questions. <laughs> I love it. So the dog included in this statue, um, Mr. Brady had this to say about the dog. He was, quote, a, str a pretty strict fellow, Brady said, his dad told him. He had a dog that was with him all the time. So that he's referring to Mr. Reeves, but in right. reference to the dog. Um, he had a dog that was with him all the time and wouldn't allow the children to touch the dog. He, the dog, could be that vicious. He had to be. Bass would take him out in the territory to watch the prisoners. It was a big, black, furry dog, and he was highly trained. Dang. So now, imagine the beggar walking 30 miles with his dog to collect you. And now you've got to walk back 30 miles. You've got a lawman in front of you and his dog behind you. <laughs> My dog's name is Cherubis. Uh, he looks like a serious black from Harry Potter and um, terrified. Mm. Simply terrified. I'm, and I'm, that, I'm here for it. That is my story. I love it. Oh, that is so incredible. Like, I th I've heard the name Bass Reeves, but I have done zero research, you know, aside from seeing a, a meme or, or you know, something in passing and just kind of going, all right. Yeah, I 
I started looking for stories for him about him when I first saw his picture and thought, I, I need to tell the story before she does. <laughs> I love it. I will be so sad if she beats me to it. So there you go. I have a story that you you might know of might know of. Okay. Okay. Um before I start, I'm gonna ask you a simple question. What okay. country has the most pyramids? I would love to say Egypt, but it's probably somewhere in South America. Sudan. Oh, I, I forgot am, about Sudan. Okay. I yep, am going right. to tell you about the Sudanese pyramids. Ooh, okay. You ready? I'm excited. Yeah. Okay. So my sources, it's basically just a Nat Geo love fest is what I'm getting oh, into. I love okay? using Nat Geo. So National Geographic had this incredible article titled these mighty pyramids were built by one of africa's earliest civilizations by emma thompson they have a podcast called overheard in which nat geo does nat geo i swear to you and it is basically like and you know that this this was not something that the higher-ups thought of that it was pitched to them um the concept is you know you're listening to your coworkers tell these absolutely batshit insane stories and you go we need to record this because no one believes this is our work conversation. So the podcast, we say that at work all the time. <laughs> well, the podcast is called Overheard, and this one that I'm quoting is scuba diving in a pyramid. Ah, uh, that's a wild story that just smacked you right in the face. And you're like, okay, qua, huh? I am now included in this conversation. Please and thank you. Uh, I'm done listening over through the cubicle. I will be joining you and <laughs> seated on the floor next to your desk. Thank I you. Snack. <laughs> and uh, bring out your desk chocolate at will. In fact. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, those were the two big sources, right? Now, there were other smaller articles, but they're not as cool. Um, okay. So, okay. Powered by agriculture, ancient Sudan's great civilizations thrived and erected mighty temples and tombs honoring their gods, kings, queens, and nobles. Their building boom left behind some 255 pyramids, more than twice the number of Egypt. That's in, you said 255? Correct. Now, cool. that that's not what's remaining, but that, you know, we, we, we can see that there were at least that many. Gotcha. Okay. Right. Yet few Westerners have seen these hulking sandstone relics, and that's because uh, Sudan's tourism industry has been impeded by, you know, two civil wars. Uh, the most it's, recent. They're busy. Yeah. You know, <laughs> they've they're working through some stuff, right? <laughs> we'll have you for dinner later. <laughs> uh -huh. The most recent ended in 2005. And the battle for independence that led to the creation of South Sudan in 2011. Now, that did cause me to go and look up the State Department and kind of see what what the where things are now. Um, travel to Sudan is currently still not advised due uh, going to ongoing civil unrest that's related to the 2021 coup, which I didn't know was a thing, but. Basically, it's at its highest threat level. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, like, you wouldn't go to Russia right now for the same reasons that you wouldn't go to Sudan. Check. 
Okay. Um, however, when tensions ease, Sudan offers a singular chance to camp beside a crowd-free ancient pyramid and to learn about the mysterious reign of these little-known pharaohs. And that, that would be so much fun. Like, okay, have you ever looked at pictures? I haven't gone to Egypt. It's it's on my bucket list. But have you ever looked at pictures of the the pyramids? Yeah, Egypt okay. was my first love. And have you zoomed out just slightly to see how close the pyramids are to a freeway? The, yeah. <laughs> like it's to the McDonald's? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. It's um, it's wild. To know that these are like when you think of like camping beside a pyramid, that's Sudan. Okay. The pyramids are a slightly different shape. You know, okay. they're not as equilateral triangle. They're more of, you know, an acute to, to go to my okay. sophomore geometry class. Um, but that is still just like, holy crap. Now, these, so Sudan is is a thousand miles from the Egyptian pyramids, right? It's just, it's the southern neighbor, but it's down the Nile. Or up the Nile? Down? I mean, the river flows north. Okay, so I'm going to say with down uh, the Nile. But see, it, the river's flowing. Yeah, but, but yeah, so you're right. Up the Nile. Okay, we're, we're going up. Okay, it, it feels weird because south means down. So I'm... Scream your comments. We're here, we'll hear them. Trust I don't us, feel... we're thinking the same thing. <laughs> There's no winner in this debate. Truly. Um, yeah. So... Guided road trip along the Nile Valley takes you to the splendid temple at Salib to the UNESCO-recognized Meroe. It's, it's written M-E-R-O-E, and the E has two umlauts over the top, or the umlauts, which is the two dots. But it's Meroe. I, I looked it up, listened to a couple of people say it. Um, it's on the podcast, but I'm probably also saying it wrong despite practicing. I'm used to this. It's the story of my life. And at Miraway, it's the world's largest cache of pyramids. And cache feels like a weird word. It feels like that is a bag that I have stashed in a tree trunk for geocaching. It's weird to consider pyramids in a cache. Um, right. <laughs> we didn't bag them. We didn't yeah. box them. We didn't hide them. They're just there. Oh, out there. They're a building. They can't yeah. be a cache. <laughs> but this is the word used. So Nubia, where these are, once stretched from Aswan, Egypt, to modern-day Khartoum, Sudan, and it gave rise to one of the early, Africa's earliest civilizations, the Kingdom of Kush. Now, these kings are nicknamed the Black Pharaohs. They conquer Egypt in 747 BCE and rule the vast territory for nearly a century. And we have very little information on them for several reasons. One is that... First off, the Egyptians were incredible note takers. They wrote down tons of history. And when they conquered Sudan or the kingdom of Kush, um, many of the noble Kushites were um, trained and learned hieroglyphs and all of those fun things. And then they end up realizing that Egypt at that point in time, it's fairly divided, working against itself. And so then these black kings come into leadership and they you know, want to make Egypt great again. And in doing so, I'm uh, so sorry. <laughs> the visual you gave me was like a handful of Nubian beautiful pharaohs, but mm -hmm. instead of wearing the pharaoh throne, they had red crown, hats. They're, they're wearing, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely, the look you just gave yeah. me, and I will You're never welcome. recover. <laughs> it's it's what I'm here for. You know, I'm serving looks. 
<laughs> that may not be how the children use the word, but this is how we're going forth. Anyhow, so the 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 Kushites weren't exactly the best at recording their own history, and the Egyptians kind of turned a blind eye. So there are blind spots in the Nash or in the the historical record because it was only five pharaohs pharaohs it was only a hundred years that they were dominated and they don't necessarily want to remember that you know for them that's that's not exactly what they would consider their bright years so they just kind of mm -hmm. we don't talk about that time yes that ex was good to me but i don't need to bring it up because i'm with a new person now um i am working through things yes now all of that said, other issues we have are just, you know, blatant racists. You know, the, the Egyptologist from 100 years ago who came and kind of went, Kushites ruled for, you know, five generations. Oh, no, no. And they said fairly problematic things. Quotes in which I will not be reading because they are. Good call. Yeah. Um, problematic. Mm -hmm. At best. Like, I don't care if this guy was an Ivy League professor. He was an asshole. Uh-huh. Thanks, yeah. colonialism. Yeah. This story brought to you by colonialism. Always. So with all of that said, these pyramids are not well known. They're not as exciting. But the kings that, that made them, the black pharaohs, when they went through this whole, we can be Egyptian, we're going to make Egypt great again, they kind of went hard on Egyptian culture and brought forth a lot of things that had started to fall out of favor and not as cool. Like think Catherine the Great. She wasn't okay. Russian, but when she took over her husband's throne, she became more Russian than the Russian. In fact, and was and, much better at it than he was. Right. So that's what we see with these, these black pharaohs. They end up like coming in and they're like, they go on building sprees and they just bring back all of the old gods that are, are worshipped and really kind of lean in heavy to the Egyptian culture and do a lot of really cool things, even though we don't really hearken back to them. Okay. So all of that, this drama plays out on the banks of the world's longest river, the Nile, flowing south to north. So it flows up, which makes our conversation earlier weird. <laughs> from And it flows from Lake Victoria to the Mediterranean. And this legendary waterway is considered the source of life itself because of the annual flooding that brings fertile soil for farming. Now, from the capital of Khartoum, there it's a nine-hour drive to Solib, Sudan's best preserved temple and the southernmost structure built by Amenhotep III, the Egyptian pharaoh who also commissioned the temples at Luxor. It was once guarded by the Prudhoe lions, the, the pair of finely carved red granite beasts that were inscribed by the boy king Tutankhamun when he visited. They're not in Sudan anymore because, surprise, they're now on display at London's British Museum. Ah, I would have never guessed. Right? Um, mm -hmm, yep. I'm surprised. I mean, because they're not small, so. I'm not yeah. surprised. Truly not even a little bit surprised. Well, like the meme of like, why are the pyramids still in Egypt? Because they were too big to take back to the museum. Yeah. So there's that. Um, you, from there, you can take a small barge to the village of Wawa on the western bank of the Nile, where you'll see the sandstone columns of Salim or columns of Celeb's main hall. 
Carved at their base are images of Assyrians, hands chained behind their back, whom the black pharaohs took as prisoners of war. Oh, right. That's interesting. Okay. And then a few miles south of Salib, set back from the tents where locals serve small glasses of tea beside the Nile, is Kerma. Established around 5,500 years ago, the ancient capital grew up around the huge adobe temple called Western Dufafa. At its height, yeah, the I'm city... sorry, say that again. Defafa, defufa, de... Look, I really just like it's none of these options. It it's really none happy. of these options, right? <laughs> Take your pick. I know. I, I'm, I'm it trying. Made me really happy. There's a lot of words here. I tried. You did good. You're doing good. Yeah. You know what? You got this. I'm, from your lips to God's ears. At its height, the city had a population of ten thousand. Today, its mud brick, its mud brick ruins are inhabited only by nesting swallows. Just over an hour's drive south of there, and slowly being swallowed by the sands, is, o is old Dongola. Founded with a fortress in 8600, it served as the capital of the medieval Nubian kingdom, Makuria, and grew into palaces, houses, and Christian churches. It is a major stop on the Darb al-Aribin 40 Days Road that camel, thousands of camel caravans followed, transporting ivory and slaves between the Sudanese towns of Darfur and Egypt. So there's cool. just a lot of real ancient history. And not yeah. ancient from the medieval period, because that's not ancient. But Well, I guess that still is ancient. But much Actual, more. Like it feels, ancient, yeah. And when we're talking about, you know, thousands of years ago and then going back to the Dark Ages, it doesn't feel ancient. Like, that yeah. feels too new. That feels almost like an iPod. Like, the Dark Ages feel like an iPod? Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, when we're talking about... Anyhow. Um, best preserved in the Church of the Old Granite Columns, its pale pillars framing the throne hall that was converted into a mosque in 1317 and remained in use until 1969. It's now open to visitors along with the adjacent Islamic graveyard with distinctive 17th-century domed tombs known as cubas. Hmm. All of this, like, when I was reading this, I was just like, okay, so State Department, um, you have a scale one to four, four being do not pass go, do not collect $200, and you say that Sudan's at level four. But I'm assuming level four has, has levels. So how much of a do <laughs> not travel here is some place I should not travel? Because this place sounds delightful. Agreed. I mean, I get that I'm the color of an index card and my hair is the color of a highlighter on any given day and that perhaps I would not blend in. We'll just get you a hat. I'm going to need more than a hat. <laughs> and some sunscreen. Yeah, some. you couldn't Dolly Parton disguise me into a way that I would be able to blend into Sudan. No. Live you your know, best life. How did Teresa die? Well, she got her passport stamped, and that's where the story starts. <laughs> it was so, a great run. She had a great run. <laughs> yeah. As the Nile loops eastward, you come to El Kuru, a cemetery used by the royal family of the Kingdom of Kush. Unlike in Egypt, Nubian barrel chambers sit below the pyramids and not inside them. 
which is exciting. And when you listen to the podcast, the overheard one, and where they talk about the scuba divers, one of the reasons why many, like, first off, they're not able to do a lot of excavating because of, you know, the civil unrest, but because of the rising water table, the Nile River has flooded many of these burial chambers. And so hmm. that surprisingly has been very preservative for many of the items inside because one, it's harder for Tomb Raiders to go in when it's underwater. You know, you kind of right. need different sets of tools and, and two, skills. Yeah. Um, too, the the water actually doesn't have bigger or as big of swings in temperature as say the air does and so oh. it keeps it stable and then when you think about that that water level it prevents animals from going in and scavenging and mucking it up hmm, okay so it's pretty exciting to think that there are royal tombs that are almost intact that we almost have no way of see that's actually pretty cool right like let it stay don't touch it <laughs> you put that thing back or so help me um yes <laughs> but the one of the people interviewed in the podcast talked about how she in scuba gear you know is doing her whole thing in the darkness and she would hear the whoosh of a big piece of the tomb actually falling into the water near oh. her so well, that's not I terrifying mean, yeah you know considering that her her air is pumped in through um like she's climbing in through a hole roughly the size of a tv and her air is piped in on a tube to her back and she's got a can a hairspray can of hair you know on her hip should she get caught in a collapse which isn't a lot but during breaks, you know, she had a a spot in the tomb that was above the water, you know, in this big kind of cavernous location. And she's able to climb up out of the water, pull out a bag of dry gummy bears, eat that as lunch. She sounds like me. And then <laughs> put the gummy bears back and go back into the water. I mean, it, the whole thing just seems very surreal. It does. Yeah, it really does. And all the while, I'm... I'm thinking about my oxygen tube being pinched off. Right. And just panicking. And just hearing the kasploosh and just going. Yeah. I, I don't even, I'm not even going to see it. It's just going to like pin me to the ground and I'm be like, Bob, Bob. Hello. I need some help. Can, can somebody uh, decline my Instacart order for the day, please? Yeah. Um, I'm not going to need fresh vegetables. It's going to be a minute. But an ambulance would be great. <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. Now, so going back to, you know, the, the the fun article, not going off my own tangent, the adobe tunnels cover the entrances to the chambers. Chief among them is the tomb of King Tanutamun. You, you know, I do it, I practice it, and then I start, I hit record, my, my tongue goes, goodbye. <laughs> What's the name of the Canadian First Nation sniper? Egamagabo. Yeah, you badass. So, you know, six <laughs> episodes from now, I'm going to be nailing this guy's name like I've said it every day for my entire life. But now, no, <laughs> nope. Not today. So this man's tomb has 
uneven, shallow steps that descend to the darkness until a flashlight click reveals a dual, a duo of domed rooms, one that leads into the other, their white gypsum walls covered with intricate murals in ochre and yellow, which just, wow. I know. I just, I, I want to, did I mention, I looked up, can I go there? Like how I dangerous is you. dangerous? What are we willing to forego? Like I could lose a toe. You know, my problem is with my luck and the fact that I have looked up just how dangerous the narration of my life would be like, and reader, she got exactly to their airport. And that's where she was captured. <laughs> like, I'm not even going to get to see it. I'm just going to get to the airport and they're going to be like, you know, we're going to ransom. And you're out. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to ransom the Caucasian curiosity there in customs. Just go ahead and snag her. <laughs> We've already picked her. We saw her coming. Yeah. You, she didn't <laughs> blend in. We knew exactly what we were going for. And that would be it. It would be my Caucasian curiosity. That's how I'm going to die. <laughs> On the back wall of the arresting. Just... What? I'm so sorry. I'm just... I love the phrase, it'll be my Caucasian curiosity. It's like the same energy as the, the cat, you know? Cat. Oh my gosh. Curiosity killed the cat? Yeah, curiosity killed the cat, yeah. but whatever brought it back. I, like the exact same energy and the fact that it's so freaking true. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It'll be my Caucasian well curiosity. Alone. Or am I con me just convinced that I can tame rabid squirrels? It's my belief that my leggings and flip-flops will get me out of anything. <laughs> Facts. Because I'm a white lady, you know? <laughs> uh, you know, pumpkin spice latte in hand. In hand. We got this. We don't need nothing else. We can handle it. <laughs> mm. Okay, so on the back wall is an arresting scene depicting Tanutamun's heart that's being weighed against the feather by Mott, the goddess of truth. And the Kushites just like the Egyptians, believe that a person's good and bad deeds are determined if the king's soul could pass into paradise. You know, so is your heart heavier than the feather of truth kind of deal. More royal tombs crop up in Nuri, which is further upstream. And Nuri is just like, that's talked about in the podcast. That's where they go scuba diving in the middle of the desert. That's um, so weird. I, I know. It. I know. And they even <laughs> have their own patches. Which, I'm, well, of yeah. course, they, they, they've earned it. Merit badge. Yeah. That's work We're merit need to badge. We t-shirts. Oh, hell yeah, we do. Yeah. Now we need to make a t-shirt for the podcast. I'm on it. Caucasian <laughs> <laughs> curiosity at its finest. <laughs> mm, there we go. Okay, so the smaller and steeper 70-plus pyramids are now reduced to 20. So we didn't get to keep all of them. The most famous of the tombs belong to King, I'm going to butcher this, King Taharka, the black pharaoh who conquered Egypt, and King Nastasin, which archaeologists have to scuba dive to reach because of the rising groundwaters. Which is just da da da, and I recommend the podcast. I've listened to and it. And it's called times. Overheard. It's Overheard. But if you just look up Sudan pyramids, it'll be like your top result because everybody else who says Sudan pyramids, they're talking about Egypt and they go, but Sudan has got more pyramids than everybody else. And then they just go on to talk about Gaza. They go on to talk mm. about Giza. That checks. 
So Nuri served as a royal necropolis for the adjacent town Napata, the first capital of the kingdom of Kush. Both the cemetery and the ruins of the settlement lie across the Nile from Jebel Barkal, a 371-foot-tall sandstone mesa. And from the summit, you can see the ruins of Nuri, including the rows of cracked pillars and pairs of giant stone rams, and their eyes and ears have been worn away by time, which, again, I want to go, I want to see, I want to put my fingers on it. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Like when I would go to, to stores, I would have to put my hands in my pocket because I would just touch everything. I want to touch it with my hands. Mm-hmm. Must mm-hmm. feel How do I know texture. if I'm going to buy it if I don't feel it? Thank you. Yes. Mm-hmm. I don't want Very this tactile. if I can't touch it. Mm-hmm. To which my family would say, you have no money and we don't want to buy it for you. So put your hands in your pockets or you will sit <laughs> on the curb. Okay, fine guess I'm sitting on the curb. <laughs> right? So the western side of Jabil Barkal is a crumbling storm frame that leads to the temple of Mutt, wife of a moon. And a moon is the god that they just absolutely went gaga for. Searchlights or spotlights illuminate its fine wall murals, including Taharka's coronation in white clay, ochre, and deep blue, which oh. I'm a big fan of blue. I want to see. I, I can imagine how gorgeous that is. And then finally, the Nile weaves past Meroe, the Kushite capital, until the empire collapsed in 400 AD. And the site of Sudan's best preserved pyramids, more than 200 of them spread out across the sands. That's wild. And while I'm doing that, let me actually show you one of them because it is incredible. Wow. Okay, so... Remember when she was talking about her sophomore year geometry? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's it's like um, we're looking at the doorway, and the doorway is, imagine an H, and the bottom center is cut out. That's what you're walking through. It's a different set of brick than or stone than the exterior walls. I can't, the fact that it's the same color as the ground, like the same set of colors as the ground and br- around it, you could actually see why these remained hidden for so long. They probably blend in so beautifully. Like, I mean, I don't know if they necessarily blend in or if we've just ignored them and treated them as the not Egyptian ripoffs and not paid attention to, no, this was a its own culture and own point in time. Well, they deserve all the notes in history because it's phenomenal. Right. And the workmanship that went into this. So when you're thinking of an Egyptian pyramid, like you imagine that, that, you know, 3D shape. So this image is just showing us the entrance in. So we're only seeing one wall and the Mm. top portion of it is missing. Mm -hmm. But you can see, you can see where it would have ended. Yep. It is absolutely stunning. Yeah. Yeah. Which and I is... think it's interesting that the exterior, like the two, the left and the right, they have borders as opposed to what's on the inside. You know, do you see what I'm saying? Like, it's like you, uh, when you draw a pyramid at home and you make the border thicker. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> so yeah you, that's totally yeah. what it looks mm-hmm. like. They 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 spent a bit of time doing the outline. Yeah, they definitely did. Yeah. Oh, it's gorgeous. No, we have, we have like, and honestly, there's, there's more photos. Let me, 
Does it say, do we have any images of the inside? Not of the inside. No, I wish. But like you can see from, you know, the, the Mesa looking out over the expanse, how you just have a cluster of them and there's just nothing around. Yeah. Like it is miles. what you would imagine the pyramids at, at Giza look like. And then you, you see actual images of how close they are to humanity. And you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. I'd be fine without the people. <laughs> Pardon you people. Uh, yeah. Could you go away? I mean, and I, yeah, I mean, I just, I'm just not a big people fan, um, but it is what it is. It's beautiful. I mean, if death by desert is your goal. Now, because that's all that's around this place. And I'm I'm good with going out like that. Again, it'll be the Caucasian curiosity. So the bases are made of granite and sandstone, and they're etched with elephant, giraffe, and gazelle designs. And they believe that that's proof that this was once fertile grasslands. Which well, that I mean, fact alone, like that's nuts. I mean, just imagine just rolling green throughout here. Like, I, I, okay, yeah. Where's the TARDIS? Where's the time machine? Sign me back. I'm, I'm good to go. I would very much like to see it, please and thank you. Yep. So this mm-hmm. is the biggest congregation of pyramids in the world, and reports archaeologist and Moroe site manager Mahmoud Suleiman. At the time of the 2019 revolution, street signs, advertisements, and the paintings all featured their images. It brought people together because the pyramids are so tied to our sense of identity. Which that makes sense, right? Like, this is what you grow up with. This is, like, any place within a 300-mile radius of Yosemite has Half Dome featured. Right. It's our backyard. Yeah. Right. Like, that is... How many places in California are the gateway to Yosemite? Just one. <laughs> you say that. Everybody swears that they're the gateway. You're like, really? Well, there's really? technically three, but we're the special one. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So these pyramids are mentioned in the writings of Herodotus, and there's an air of defiance about these structures that stand firm against the sands trying to swallow them. Indeed, it's an act of resistance that led to their construction in the first place. In the 3rd century BC, Cushite king Arakamani had grown tired of the Meroe-led kingdom's power-hungry priests. These guys had sent an order for him to commit suicide, and so he responds by having them murdered instead. Well, that's what you get. (laughs) I mean, look, you're having a bad day. You're sick and tired of the bureaucrats. And they say, we need you to pack up your desk. And you say, you know what? You're fired. I'm going to alt-delete you guys. Peace. Yeah. Deuces. So the rebellion ushered in a new era of culture. The almighty Egyptian god Amun-Ra was downgraded in favor of the lion god, Abedimak, and that still undeciphered script from their culture that, you know, was created. The warrior queens, known as the Pandics, ruled the army. Inside the tombs, the carvings of the kings stand taller than the gods, and you don't see that in Egypt. Here, kings controlled everything except death. It's a strong message, one that inspired a fresh wave of national pride for just 
as ancient Greece informed so much of today's European culture, so did too Nubia-shaped Sedan. It is the bedrock that formed the country's sense of self and identity, and understanding this history suggests the way forward for Sudan. These were very popular kings and queens, says Aya Alam, a Sudanese martial artist based in Khartoum. They are a reminder that we were once a great nation and could become great once again. And that line right there is incredible and shows the power of representation and story. Um, what were the queens called? Probably not what I said, but in but just case, you, you hit me docks, with a, a fascinating line, and then then you then you left me. I know. <laughs> um, it's K A N D A K E S. So I'm going to assume it's anything like Welsh. You have the spelling. Think of how you want to pronounce it wrong okay that's just you know my self-deprecation coming out i don't think you're wrong though welsh is one of those languages that every word is 37 letters long and doesn't sound anything like it's spelled yeah you're like but there's no j there's three j's and how you pronounce it (laughs) we don't have any j in our alphabet but there's three j's and how you pronounce it yep (laughs) I'm sorry, Wells. I'm not sure if you have J's in your alphabet. I'm just, you know, silly. it's just the feeling. That's <laughs> the spirit of. Indeed. Um, but yeah, that's the story of the Sudanese pyramids. And I, it was one of those stories that as I was researching it, I was like, it's not one specific storyline I'm following. It's kind of like an amalgamation of everybody and everything. Cause there's like, there's not a, as much information as there is, there's not a ton. So you can't well, like zoom in on one guy because it's the winners who write history. And these guys were only around for five kings. And they all deserve their due. So I think, they, you, yeah. They didn't do as much writing as the Egyptians. And so the, the Egyptians kind of like brushed them under the rug. That checks. It makes me sad all at the same time because they clearly had something going on. <laughs> yeah. I loved that. Thank you. Yeah. The the Egyptian pyramids were my very first, like, that's the first thing about history I remember loving. So same. learning about any kind of pyramid is um, quite pleasing. But yeah, no, that was, that was really fun. And I... I now like need a list of places that I'm going to visit once, once the state department clears and the consulate's open. I'm here for that. I'm 100% here for that. Could not agree with you more. And if you are looking for a place and a list, and maybe we'll put together a dangerous, dark tourism vacation package, and you're thinking, I need to be in on this from the get-go so we can learn together where we're going because... Romania is strangely safe, and Dracula's cla- castle is just a hop, skip, and a, a plane right away. Yeah. Then rate, review, subscribe. Talk to your local florist on where you would like to go and why they should listen to this <laughs> podcast. And on that note, goodbye. Bye bye.